P.S. The Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Renee Sims, a professor in the African American Studies Department and contributing faculty to English. As we discussed, she's also a working writer who's been widely published. Her debut work, a 2018 collection of essays titled Meet Behind Mars, was included on Tayari Jones's list of her favorite books of 2018. Today, as always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. Here's Professor Sims. Professor Sims, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to have you. And I want to start with... um. What I think will seem maybe a basic question, but I actually think has some more complexity to it than meets the eye. What does it mean to be a professor? What what does that title mean? What do you do in your job? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And I think that there are, you know, very practical things that you do as a professor. You know, you you study, you prepare lessons, you teach, you grade papers. But for me, that question um, offers an opportunity to think about um, aspirational uh, things, like what should a professor uh, be doing for students uh, and thinking about my own um, interactions with professors when I was a student. And to me, what a professor should be able to do is inspire students to think about the world in new ways and um, to feel energized and empowered to go out and make change in some way in the world. And I think about professors that I had in undergrad. Think about one professor uh, who I think is retired now. He's um, emeritus, uh, but he was the one professor who kind of really paid attention to me and who took me seriously as a thinker and who was teaching a class called Hegel, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. His name is Fritjof Bergman. He's a philosophy professor. And I seriously considered philosophy at one point um, because of him and and other classes that I was taking. Uh, But his class was about those three philosophers, but it was also about this project that he was working on uh, called New Work. Um, And he was really interested in thinking about the way that work in the US and in other nations could be um, reimagined so that we're not just going in and doing things for profit, for paycheck, but that we're doing the type of work that inspires us. Um, and so, yeah, he had you know big conceptual ideas and he took me seriously and he would meet with me in his office Uh, during office hours. Um, And I realized, you know, and that was in the 1980s, so a long, long time ago. But the novel that I'm writing now is inspired in part by conversations I had with him by his class. And one of the characters is clearly (laughs) based off of him. So I think that's what a good professor does, is just um, excites students about ideas and possibilities in the world. One of the reasons I love asking that question, one of the reasons I loved your answer, is I think that gets at the heart of how a professor is maybe different from a teacher. And I think that distinction, the way it's drawn in the public eye, especially for high school students who could have had dramatically different experiences of what it is to be in class, what it is to have a teacher, what that role looks like, 
is that oftentimes the way the public thinks of the difference between a professor and a teacher is a scary difference, right? A professor is less accessible, is sort of quote unquote smarter, has less time for you, is more uh, involved in kind of the, the cognoscenti part of the world. And my experience was that that was not the case, but I think it's important to hear it from the people doing the work too. Yeah, I, I agree with that so much. Um, and, you know, the difference to me between maybe my experience in undergrad at a, at a research one, I was at University of Michigan, so a huge campus, you can really get lost. Um, and I think one reason why I remember Professor Bergman is because he noticed me, right? So I didn't feel lost when I was in his presence. But at a smaller college, I think that type of mentoring um, and relationship building is is foundational to what we do. Um, and yeah, it makes all the difference in the world for students. When you first started teaching at Puget Sound, did you have that front of mind in terms of how you approached your classes and your students? Um, no, I would say that, you know, as I, the longer I teach and the more that I have to reflect on it um, for, you know, statements in promotion files, et cetera, um, you know, the more deeply I think about what it means to be a teacher. Um, and so I can't say that coming into the job that I thought as deeply about what it means to be a good professor um, as I do now. I've also been very fortunate in that I, you know, work with colleagues, um, you know, professors uh, Livingston um, and Gordon have been outstanding mentors to me um, and have talked continuously about um, teaching and pedagogy and what it means to really um, make a difference for students. So yeah, I think, I, think I, I know that I think more deeply about teaching today than I did in 2011. The other thing I want to foreground before we get into some of my later questions is what it means to be a professor of African-American studies in particular. And part of the reason I ask is for the same reason I asked about the distinction between a teacher and a professor. For students in high school, oftentimes your idea of the things you can study is the sort of biology, English, math, social studies. And to come to college and start to have the experience of, whoa, there are disciplines I've never heard of. I've never taken a philosophy class. I didn't know you could major in African-American studies. I didn't know you could major in science, technology, and society. Oftentimes takes um, just a, it, it's a new lens on thinking about what it means to be a student and a scholar. Absolutely. I think that um, that's why these years are just so magical to me, right? And I, I really, you know, try to talk to students about taking advantage of your college years because it does open your mind in ways that weren't available to you often uh, before you came to came to campus. Um, African American studies is one of those disciplines. It's it's interdisciplinary, right? So that um, people who teach in the field are people who have been trained um, in history, in economics, in political science, in literature, um, in communication studies. You can talk about um, African diasporic, you know, um, experiences from all of those different disciplinary um, 
perspectives and approaches. So um, yeah, it's a field that's that's rich, um, that has a, a tradition of coming from the community, right? Being um, a discipline where students and faculty members protested uh, for this to be accepted in predominantly white institutions. So it's got an activist background. Um, and it's one that I think increasingly in my experience and what I hear from other people and what I read, it is a discipline that people are recognizing is really relevant uh, right now in 2020. I would argue that it's always been relevant, uh, but I think that the need to understand um, power and race um, and all the intersections of social, you know, all the different social identities that play into power and power dynamics, that that is a part of education too, that our students are demanding and that they need to, to be out in the world. So I'm really happy to be in African-American studies. Um, and I'm always impressed by the scholarship that's there because, because it's interdisciplinary. Um, you know, you can claim people like James Baldwin Toni Morrison, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, just so many great intellectuals and thinkers. To your point about the very acute public need for these conversations in this year, that strikes me as maybe another way in which the role of professor morphs a little bit. At Puget Sound, the Department of African American Studies is extraordinarily generous with holding teach-ins, with doing community outreach and community learning even beyond the boundaries of that department. And that in many ways, I don't know whether to say wraps into or ties on to your role as a professor, but is, is I think a striking component of that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no way to kind of um, untangle um, the community engagement, the activism, and the scholarship when it comes to African American studies. It's, and any of the African American um, traditions, right? So I teach literature primarily. Um, and in the literary tradition, I'm always telling students, you know, that you can't um, uncouple activism and politics from the literary tradition um, because it's there from the inception. So yeah, our, our involvement in community and in engaging uh, the public and in public scholarship is foundational to what we do on campus um, and in the classroom and in preparing students to go out into the world. I wonder if we might talk about some of your work too as a way of thinking about how scholarship intersects with teaching and intersects with some of those um, larger ideas. This is another area where I think it might be useful to consider kind of the, the public imagination versus some of what I understand to be the reality of scholarship. Every time, I shouldn't say every time, that's not fair. Oftentimes when I'm talking to folks who don't have a lot of experience of research or of higher education, the mental image that you have of research is white guy in lab coat, right? That's sort of the clip art <laughs> image. Right. And that strikes me in just about every way as very different from the work, certainly that you're doing, but that anyone who's a scholar of literature does in terms of what it means to research. Can you help us untangle that a little bit? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'll give you an example of just uh, recent research that I've done. So 
Um, as a writer, and I write fiction and nonfiction, I feel like my research is part of my daily practice of just living and being in the world so that I'm constantly observing and listening. Uh, because as a writer, I feel like what I'm doing, first and foremost, is trying to think deeply about the human condition and what it means to be human in this moment. And that means I have to be attentive to other people um, and I have to listen and pay attention. So that's part of my research. I consider that part of my research and daily practice. But I also, you know, when I'm writing um, a piece of work, an essay, a story, or you know, a whole manuscript, a novel. Um, there may be things that I need to go and do, you know, more scholarly academic research on. Um, and a couple years ago, this is 2020, so I think in 2019, so a year ago, um, I went to Mexico to do research for the novel that I'm working on. Um, and the way I ended up there was kind of weird. So, um, kind of similar to how I understand that historians work, a writer will kind of, you know, catch one thread that leads to something else that takes you to another area. Um, and really the inspiration for this novel was thinking about cruelty in auto plants, right? Because I had heard a story that my brother told me. He was an auto worker for 40 years and I never forgot that story. And so I was interested in, in that and thinking about it and started doing, you know, reading about the auto industry, its origins, its practices, um, and then thinking about how the industry is transnational. And a lot of cars come from Mexico. Um, and so I went there um, and ended up, you know, doing some research on auto industry industries there, but also just thinking about the culture in Mexico um, and thinking about the, the parallels between, I was in Mexico City, thinking about parallels there between Mexico City and Detroit, which I had never anticipated. So that took me in directions that were, that were interesting. Um, and so I ended up, you know, going to museums. I ended up, um, going to the pyramids. Um, I, I ended up doing a lot of cultural work and thinking about art. And that has become a big part of the book in a way that I couldn't have anticipated. So that's, that is, you know, one way that I do research. And I was only able to do that because of a grant, um, but I'm pretty instinctual in that I follow um, my gut. Um, I might have a plan, a research plan written out, um, but I kind of follow what interests me because as a creative writer, that often leads to things that are more spontaneous and interesting. If it, if it interests me, I might be able to write it in a way that it'll interest the reader on the page. When you research in that way, what do you hold on to for when you're writing from that experience of being in Mexico City? Do you retain the themes and conclusions that you yourself come to? Do you take pictures of visuals that you've seen or do you write down things you've heard what what comes home with you all of it yeah as you were talking I was I was thinking yeah I have all these you know photos that I took um while I was there that I look at um and that I have pasted up you know in in 
my son's bedroom, which is now my, <laughs> which is now my office, home office. Um, so I look at those things. And again, there were just parallels that I could never have imagined between what I saw in Mexico City and, and Detroit. And I ended up going to Detroit after Mexico mm-hmm. um, to do research about what the city is like now, because I grew up there in the 1980s, left in 1996. Um, and it's changed so much. Um, but it was really interesting because, um, so I went to um, Xochimilco, which, you know, um, you know, has these canals and you can ride boats. And, um, you know, it's interesting to hear the history and how there was, you know, a city underneath, right, that was built on top of and that it's sinking. Um, and then to go to Detroit and look at the gentrification that's happening and thinking of a city being built on top of Detroit, right, and how certain histories get submerged and buried and erased. Um, so connections like that I could never have made. And there's like a Mexican town, there's a, there's a, a Mexican community in Detroit. And so I researched that history. There's a restaurant that I, you know, grew up going to called Xochimilco, which I had no idea was an actual place. So um, I think there are lots of rich, you know, poetic um, moments that arose because I took pictures, because I, you know, wrote down things that I learned during tours and doing research and going to museums. And I have that up in my office as I write. Do you swap in and out the things that are up as you're writing or is it all up and consistent throughout the process? Uh, I swap. Yeah, Yeah. I swap. Yeah, I I have some things um, kind of like an outline um, of themes that I want to return to, words that I want to consider, where I think the story is going, which, you know, ultimately I... I'm not good at following roadmaps. I always (laughs) take, you know the other road. Um, But I have some things that remain up to try to keep me on track, but there are lots of things that I swap out. I also want to ask you about your, um, your 2018 debut collection, Meet Behind Mars, which I read in advance of our conversation today and is just strikingly beautiful. I can't encourage everybody listening to go read it. Thank you for that. In reading the collection and then in reading many reviews of the collection, sort of how the publisher characterized it. A lot of what stuck out to me about third-party characterizations, including my own, was this idea that there's consistency in the protagonists. We meet in these stories a lot of Black American women and a lot of mothers throughout these stories. And also that there is um, this deeply saturated experience of these women in these these very brief stories that encounter them generally in a moment in time and sometimes across time. Does that sort of consistent third-party impression feel like how you think of the work yourself from your point of view? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. You know, a story collection is um, challenging for me, I'll just speak from my own personal experience, because um, I spend so much time with each individual piece, thinking about that world as its own universe. And then when it comes time to put it together, you've got to find themes, or I had to find themes, because I did not originally start each story with a book in mind. Um, 
So yeah, thinking about what connects them and what resonates between each character in the story um, was a difficult task. But one of the things that I think um, I am obsessed with and that I kept coming back to, um, and you use the word time. And, and that's something that I was thinking about. I was thinking about time. I was thinking about geography. And I was thinking about um, how that impacts, you know, experience, right? So that what does it mean to um, be in um, a domestic family situation at one point in time? What does it mean to be a divorced woman in Pacific Northwest at another point in time? What does it mean to be a young teenager who wants to leave her hometown? What does it mean um, to take care of elderly parents um, who are you know, maybe on the brink of dementia? Um, so thinking about that as experiences that impact these women, um, and then also just thinking about um, what it means to get out of circumstances, right? So the first story, I, th I did think of the first and the last stories as kind of bookends. Uh, the, the first story um, has a woman who feels kind of caught in her situation as a wife and mother uh, and is imagining how to get out of it, right? Um, and it's more um, satirical and humorous. Um, and the last story has humor too, uh, but I would say the, the woman in the last story, Meet Behind Mars, which is the, the title story of the collection, um, has figured out how to get out and feels more confident in speaking out about the ways that people are trying to box her in. Um, and so I wanted to kind of have that be the journey and to have the stories in the middle somehow capture different moments within, you know, feeling like you don't have a voice and coming to the realization that you do. You are actually getting a question that I had teed up to ask you, but I was intending to ask how you order the stories in a collection like this. And I'm particularly curious about that, given that a couple of minutes ago, you said you didn't write any of them with a collection in mind. So when you start to look at all these individual works thinking, I see that there are connecting threads, how do you figure out how to create that bigger narrative arc without feeling like you're putting a square peg in a round hole? I'm smiling uh, and I want to laugh because um, I, I know that I'm supposed to like feel like an expert in this area, but I so don't. <laughs> I feel like I'm still figuring it out. Um, and I can tell you one of the things that I did, um, and this is, you know, also kind of the way that I move through the world, um, the way that my life is organized or not organized, and the way that I teach, which is, you know, um, again, um, driven by instinct and a gut feeling about what comes next. What would the turn be to the next movement? Where did I land here? And how can I pick up on that landing and transition to the next movement? So, Often I thought about where the story ended and how it might speak to the, the next story. And then also just thinking about things, um, very practical things like length, um, humor, 
you know, is the story in a form of some sort? Um, and how could I then move to something different so that you don't have, you don't feel bored because you don't feel like you're getting the same type of story back to back. So that's how the, those decisions were made. And many of your stories do take different forms. I think two of them are epistolary. Yes. The collection, which is also um, lovely. It's just a very, it's certainly, obviously it's a different structural choice for you, but it's a different way of meeting someone through the, the letters and writings that they've curated for somebody else. Yeah, so, and that, again, was not something that I, I really thought about. Um, so one of them is um, writing that's supposed to be in a journal, um, American Industrial Physics. Um, and that's a, that's one of the fair, that's like a, a, one of the first stories that I ever wrote. Um, and there's something about, you know, form that, and I often say this to students, that is helpful, right? Especially if you feel like lost, um, there's something about the structure that will kind of keep you on point. Um, and so I, I often encourage students to use form because it's a way to feel like you have a container um, when you feel kind of out of control. Um, and then Meet Behind Mars is, um, like a collection of emails and voicemail messages and letters that the main character is writing, um, talking about her experiences with a, with a school district and her son. Um, and so that story, um, a friend and, and, and writer, Tamako Nomura, um, pointed out to me, feels very evidentiary, right? Mm -hmm. And she, her question to me was about how law fits into that. Um, and I had never thought about that, but the more, ever since she asked that question, I've recognized how much um, evidence plays in what I do both as a teacher and as a writer that I'm always thinking about, well, what's the evidence for that? And I do think that's what was driving how I thought about that story. Like this woman will want to prove like all these things actually happened to me and my son and here's the proof. Um, and so that's why that form, I think, works for that story. That actually struck me as another contrast between the last story in the collection and the first story in the collection is in that first story, Hattie, the, the protagonist, is experiencing so much of what's happening inside herself. The, the journey that we're on is an emotional one. And that's very distinct from the, the form of the last one where Gloria has curated for an outside audience this progression. That's such a smart observation. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hattie very much is in her own mind and very much at the end where like there's, it's all interiority. We don't know where we are. Are we in a dream? Is she dead? You know, um, so yeah, you're kind of contained in Hattie's interiority in that story. And, and that is the problem, right, for her. That's the challenge for her where, yeah, Gloria has a voice and she's using that voice and she's speaking back to others. Um, so thank you. I'll be using that from now on. <laughs> so I want to ask you one more question about High Country, that first story, because this was just one of my favorite things. This was the kind of treat that sometimes happens when you're reading where you're reading and you have to stop because you're so struck by something that's happened. And in that moment where she and her family have just been in a car accident, maybe. She ends up, maybe, is she dead? Is she dreaming? Is she hallucinating? In this bar with this cast of eccentric characters. 
And they start to say to her, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you to write us into your stories. I want to be this character in the story you're working on. And they start to uh, name drop other writers, right? Well, we were in a Sherman Alexi book one time and man, it was really, I lost my leg in a <laughs> story and it just was so great. And I loved the idea so much that there's this wellspring of characters that are available to every author and that cycle in and out of every author's work. Can you just talk a little bit about where that comes from? <laughs> Thank you for that. That's my favorite story too. And my wish for myself and for every other writer is, you know, um, when you, when, when you experience joy and freedom in your writing, um, it will come across to the reader. And that's like the absolute best place to be. Um, And it doesn't happen for every story. Some stories are labored, right? Like, oh, and I have to revise it a million times and they're serious and they're, you know, they can be dull and plotting. And I have to accept that that's part of the process too. But yeah, High Country was just a story that um, really came out, the first and the last stories. And that's why they're placed there also, because you want to, you want to start kind of strong and end strong. And both of those stories came to me immediately. Like I wrote them in one sitting. I had to go back and revise, but pretty much the whole story came in one piece. Uh, So they weren't hard to write. They were fun to write. Um, I laughed as I did it. And I would say High Country, the story you asked about, um, really was inspired. I, I wrote it when I was in an MFA program for creative writing. Um, and one of the things that, um, you know, at the time that I was in the program that people weren't really um, writing about and taking seriously um, literary fantasy or speculative uh, writing or metafiction, right? And especially because one of the the big fiction instructors in my MFA program, you know, wrote realism. And so everyone was trying to impress that writer. (laughs) And so I had the story that was kind of weird that way and people were kind of snarky about it. Um, And they were like, well, we don't really believe in magical realism, blah, blah, this and that. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna write a story (laughs) just to spite you. Um, And so that's really what inspired me was like, I love, you know, the freedom that this offers. Um, And I I wanted to write a story that challenged myself and challenged the reader. The thing that I love about writing is when I encounter words that I wasn't expecting. Um, So surprise or a plot twist, right? That I couldn't anticipate. And so I wanted to blur that line between realism and, you know, the fantastic speculative. And when I first published that story, the epigraph was from Georgia O'Keeffe. And I'm not going to remember it exactly, but it, Georgia O'Keeffe um, once said something like, um, there's nothing less real than realism. And I was like, amen, right? There really isn't. So part of what is fun about that story is when you enter into the dream and there's no hard stop. Um, so that it becomes a commentary on realism. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and like why do we have all these differences between genre a good story is a good story and as a reader it was exciting to feel like I was being asked to participate in understanding what was going on because it wasn't always clear throughout the story and there were decisions I had to make about how to read it and what I was choosing to believe and what I was not choosing to believe and where I was maybe thinking about some of the literary traditions that those characters literally called upon and what that meant for what was right in front of me. And it just, it was exciting. Oh, thank you. That is such high praise. Like, thank you for that. I really and truly appreciate it. Yeah, that's, that's my standard. Like, if I can write a novel on that level, which, oh, God, this novel is killing me. (laughs) Yeah, I want to have that much fun and feel that much freedom uh, to create in a longer work. Hey there, I'm Ryan Del Rosario, Assistant Director of Admission and School of Music Admission Coordinator. I'm checking in to make sure you know about Puget Sound's conservatory-style School of Music. Puget Sound students can major or minor in music performance, music education, music business, and composition. Non-majors can take music classes, play in our ensembles, and even be eligible for scholarship. Visit pugetsound.edu music to find out more. But for now, back to the show. mentioned earlier in our conversation that your undergraduate degree is from Michigan. What did you study? What did you major in? Um, I did an independent concentration program. um, And that's after initially um, being interested in and declaring that English was going to be my major. And then after I'd taken, they had like core one, core two, core three courses that you had to take. Um, and I'd done those, and I was um, disappointed in how narrow the canon was. And I felt like there was all kinds of literature that I was interested in that I wasn't being introduced to in the core um, courses. Um, and so I decided, yeah, to um, apply for an independent concentration program where I came up with my own field of study. And I called it um, politics through literature, which makes absolutely no sense. But yeah, I was young. (laughs) Um, But it included courses in literature, uh, political science, philosophy, history. So I got to take like Chinese philosophy. Um, I just was thinking of literature in a different way. Um, You know, today I know that, you know, if I had had better counseling or mentoring, maybe I'd be in a comparative literature. That may have been what my major would have been. Um, But I kind of figured out and bumbled through it myself. And then when you completed that degree, somehow you became an attorney. Was, was Was that a right away thing? Um. You know, that was something that happened because my father sent me this news article back when there was no, you know, um, digital anything. So he cut out an article from the newspaper that said that liberal arts majors starve. Um, He was like, what are you going to (laughs) do? Like, What are you going to do? My mother was trying to tell me I should teach. And I was like, I'm not going to teach, you know, uh, because for some reason I associated teaching and nursing as, you know, women's jobs that I wasn't going to do because I was this young 
radical feminist, or so I thought. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, so I had in my head that I had chosen a major that maybe I couldn't find a job with, right? Mm -hmm. And I was getting this information from my parents, um, which is why I understand our students sometimes in the predicament that they find themselves in um, when they want to follow their passion, but they're being told that that's not wise. Um, and so I, I knew that I had to figure something out. And the only way I can explain this is that it was the 1980s and the Cosby show was the number one program and Felicia Rashad played an attorney every week um, and they had a fabulous house and a fabulous family. I, like there was, I had no role model for um, law either in my family or in close neighbors or friends of the family. Um, so I think really I looked to, I had friends in undergrad whose parents were lawyers. And, you know, again, Felicia Rashad was on television every week. And so I kind of thought, oh, I like to write. I like to read and maybe I can think logically and maybe this is a, a, a job where I can use those skills in a way to make money. And did you, as you were thinking through that, did you feel all of that in a good way too? Or did you, a minute ago, you said, maybe I would have followed my passion if I had had different messaging. Did you know that at the time? At the time, I really convinced myself, no, that this is what I wanted to do. Like, I was not thinking that, oh, this is my fallback plan. I knew that I loved literature, but I didn't know that I could be a writer, hmm. to be honest, right? Like, I didn't have that role model either. And that um, is one of, uh, that's a career where the models that we get of it are often liberal arts majors starve, no matter where they're coming from. The idea of what it would mean to be a writer, to be a poet, to be a painter does not have a... Um, it's kind of a liminal vision of what that is. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Which is why um, part of the work that I did, um, jumping to something else real quick, but just to make a point that after I got the MFA, I stayed for a long time working with the Young Writers Program at Arizona State University because it was a program where we went into K through 12 classrooms to show predominantly students of color in working class communities what a real writer look like, right? And that writers are not just the people you read in your textbook in the classroom, that they're people who look like you who are writing about their communities and their lives. Uh, yeah, because you just don't get that often, um, depending on where you go to school. So I wasn't thinking of going to law school as a negative thing. I was actually excited and I actually enjoyed the years that I practiced. Um, but, you know, literature just kept calling to me and ultimately I had to listen to that call. When you decided to get your MFA, did it feel like a big scary change from an established career or did it feel like a sort of moment of wings and self-actualization? It <laughs> or felt somewhere like in between. <laughs> well, it that that's a great question. Um it felt like wings and self-actualization to me. Mm -hmm. 
But the responses I got from people around me let me know that they thought I was crazy. Um, <laughs> so it felt risky to um, people who really, you know, who love me and care for me and were like, what are you doing? Like, because again, we've got this narrative about, you know, the starving artist. Um, and I would say that it wasn't until I started teaching at universities and um, published a book that, um, you know, some, some of my relatives um, and people who are closest to me really understood what I was doing. Uh, because yeah, writer is not a profession that we grew up with. Again, I grew up in Detroit where most people worked for big companies, you know, doing things with their hands, uh, doing skills. Uh, they were, you know, members in unions. And so the arts um, weren't something that just wasn't a part of um, how I imagined myself in the world as a young person, even though I was attracted to it. When did you feel like this is going to work out? Um, well, I made the decision to leave the practice of law um, really when I met um, my ex-partner. So um, I'm divorced, uh, but I was married for 15 years and my partner was um, a car designer. And so, um, and his father is a painter. So I was in a relationship with someone who had like embraced their creativity. Um, and it was through that relationship that um, I found the courage to pursue what I was really passionate about. And you mentioned earlier that you cannot divorce justice from the literary tradition. And of course, law is a profession that we often think of as really housing justice, in large part because the architecture of the legal system tells us that that's what it does. Whether or not we should believe it is a different, bigger conversation, but that's what we're told. When you started writing and started working in that literary tradition, did you feel like it was kind of the same, a new branch of the same tree? Or did you think this is a totally distinct experience? Well, I, I would say that the connection I made between the two, um, and I've, I've said this before, um, not to you, but to other people, is that when I was practicing law, the, the, the part of the practice, because I was a litigator, that I enjoyed the most was doing opening and closing statements mm. before a jury, because I got to be a storyteller in those moments. And I could connect with the jurors by the way that I put the evidence together and all the facts and told the story. And I found that that was one of my areas of strength um, compared to some of my colleagues who, you know, were brilliant lawyers, but weren't always good in telling a story that would persuade and convince the people who were on the jury. Um, so that's one connection I made between the two, but I wasn't thinking of writing as being um, that related to justice. Um, I was thinking of it as um, something that was rooted in community because um, before I went to get the MFA, when I decided to leave the practice of law, I just started writing and sending my work out 
and I moved to Los Angeles and um, a close friend of mine was like, oh, well, all of the writers and all of the artists and all of the creative people are in La Merritt Park in central Los Angeles. And so that's where I went. And at the time that I was there, and I'm not sure what it's like now, but um, late 1990s, 97, 98, 99, and early 2000s, uh, La Merritt Park had um, all of these Afrocentric businesses. There was a performance gallery where, you know, spoken word and poetry was done every Wednesday. There were, there were dance studios, restaurants, jazz cafes, um, all these retail shops. Um, and it was just a vibrant community. And that's where I first started to write and publish. So I would say that writing for me wasn't so much about justice when I first began, but it was about collectivism. It was about community. One thing I think about not infrequently is that art often allows us to experience that type of collectivism and feel what it might mean to have some of our ideals or some of our dreams or some of our wishes happen for us in a way that then maybe law or politics or anything that feels more applied can become the instrument of. But the figuring out what does this look like, what does it mean, what do we want, often feels most poignant to me when it comes from the arts. I would, I would agree with that. I, I think that um, <clears throat> that's what distinguishes us, you know, as creatures, um, is our ability to create art. Um, law too, right? Like, like I, I think that there is um, something artistic about really good practice of law, right? Um, when you center humanity and empathy and justice and doing things because they're right, right? And not in performing, not just winning because you can win, because you can come up with a clever argument. But I, I think that art speaks to truth um, and beauty and grace. And those are things that inspire us as humans. Um, and that's why we're attracted to it. Um, but I do think that there are areas of the law that can do the same thing. Um, and I think, you know, civil rights practice um, is one example of, of an area of the law where um, we can speak to those higher um, principles and goals the same way that we do in art. Professor Sims, we end every conversation by asking everybody the same four questions. The first question is, what's your favorite place on campus at Puget Sound? It is the second floor in the stacks at Collins Library, next to a window, yeah. <laughs> second question is, what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading student work, <laughs> I'm reading student <laughs> Um, yeah, student writing, but I'm also reading um, 
this book, um, Never Let Me Go um, by Kazuo Ishiguro, uh, who wrote The Remains of the Day, um, because I'm a mentor, um, an MFA student who um, is interested in literary fantasy. And we were going to read the, the Buried Giant by Ishiguro, uh, but she'd already read that. So um, we're looking at this book, which is um, a novel from 2005. Where's the best place to eat in Tacoma? Oh, I'm not the best person to ask that question because I don't eat out that often, but I can tell you the restaurants that I like just because maybe there's sentimental reasons. Uh, they're where my children and I went when we first came um, and Silk Tie, which is close to the campus. Um, Harbor Lights, my daughter always loved. Um, oh, Indo-Asian street eatery, I like. Um, Quickie too. Mm -hmm. um, is a favorite of mine uh, in Southern Kitchen. I love Southern Kitchen. I love Southern Kitchen too. I miss it. Yeah, my enjoyment of any restaurant goes up sort of in a linear fashion to how hard it is to find it. <laughs> and the Southern Kitchen is kind of like right next to an auto shop and on kind of a busy street. And you, if you didn't know, you could easily blow right past it, but it's so great. It's so great. It is a weird location though, I agree. <laughs> And lastly, what's special about Puget Sound? I think the people. I think the students um, inspire me to know and I learn. I'm constantly learning from students and I'm constantly just blown away at how smart and how sophisticated they are. And I think about myself and I, I, I've shared with students papers that I turned in at their age, which were horrible, right? And I, I look at their writing and think, well, these students are really incredible to be so young and to know so much. So I think um, our students um, is what I think the students make Puget Sound a really, really special place. Professor Renee Sims, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. You're a great interviewer. Thank you. It's really, it's my pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to P.S., the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for P.S., the Puget Sound podcast.